0: According to Buddhist cosmology, there are said to be other realms other than this one. And some people take this teaching literally, that we, after we die, we go to one realm or another. And many people take this in a different way, that these different realms are ways to look at Are strongly developed tendencies of mind, that they're manifestations of our states of mind, and that they are the different realities that we experience from moment to moment. So the human realm is, obviously is this one, it's in the middle, said to be in the middle of both a lower realm and a higher realm. And... The higher realms we may have experienced from time to time during our, our time here, uh, times when we may have experienced bliss or peace or happiness, known as the Deva realms or the Brahma realms. And the lower realms we may very well have experienced as well. <laughs> and these very appropriately are called the hell realms. So when we have experienced um, very, very difficult states of mind throughout the day or throughout our time here, we may have experienced for ourselves a hell realm. There is also a lower realm that the Buddha spoke about that we may have experienced as well. And this is known as the hungry ghost realm. The realm of the hungry ghost. The description of a hungry ghost, hungry ghost realm, is that of a being that has a very, very big stomach, so very, very big stomach, and very, very, very tiny mouth. So the stomach needs to be fed, yeah? But the mouth is so tiny, so small, that Nourishment can't be taken in. And so in this description, there is deprivation and impoverishment. And we may have experienced this during the day today as well. And we may know this very well in our life. This is when there is a hunger, sometimes a very intense hunger, sometimes an incredibly subtle hunger for nourishment, a hunger for relief, a hunger for fulfillment, a thirst, sensing within ourselves a thirst, knowing dissatisfaction. Sometimes we sense it as a restlessness, and it's not always a restlessness for something. Sometimes it's experienced as an existential restlessness. Or we feel a sense of inner barrenness or lack or need or want. We recognize that longing is occurring and there's this very strong or subtle need to be filled up glimpsing the possibility of satisfaction time after time again in this or in that, in all of the conditions in life, reaching out and being disappointed because things don't last and they're not what they seem to be. One of the images of this is imagining a town in the future of abundance, and one starts moving towards that town, thinking that it's going to contain what we want, what we need, what we have to have. And then we get up close, and we realize that it's a mirage. And we can, we can think this way over and over again, constantly reaching out, recognizing it's a mirage. And over and over again, finding ourselves quite exhausted. The hungry ghost realm is that state of mind of having to get, having to become, having to have, having to accumulate. And the hungry ghost, and this is a really important point, the hungry ghost is inherently insatiable. As long as it endures, it maintains a sense of lack We live in the Hungry Ghost frame of mind each time we seek lasting happiness from that which can't offer it, from that which is impermanent. Now the mirror image of the Hungry Ghost is contentment. And in the ordinary use of this word, contentment, in the ways that we've been educated and have learned to use this word in our lives, Oftentimes contentment means having what we want when and how we want it. And we see its fragility. You know, we see that so much is out of our control. And so this definition of contentment is quite a fragile definition. We see that our health is oftentimes out of our control, no matter how. Much we try to take care of ourselves, and how many vitamins we take, and how much nourishing food we use, we find that our health is out of our control. Our age is out of our control. Inevitably, you know, inevitably it doesn't not happen to anyone that we grow older. Um, you know, our relationships are often out of our control. So many things are out of our control that we wish weren't. In our dependence on outer conditions, we find ourselves endlessly disappointed. In the Buddhist teaching, there is a different kind of contentment that is not actually based on conditions having to be a certain way. It's a contentment that can be touched, that we can touch, despite our inability to control events. This kind of contentment, you could call this the stable kind, is nourished through our willingness to sit with the hungry ghost, to sit with our hunger, whether intense craving or whether very, very subtle craving. To sit in the midst of the hungry ghost realm means to sit with our hunger To connect with our wanting. With the understanding that trying to feed the hungry ghost perpetuates this mind state. We need to learn how to care for the hungry ghost without giving it what it wants. In other words, to offer it compassion. To not be lost in shame and embarrassment because of our needs, because of our wants. And at the same time, not trying to feed it with food that is not nourishing, that actually cannot be taken in. And this is where we might want to offer the hungry ghost, whether it has arose today or arises during our time here, or whether we see this as a pattern and a habit in our life, find ourselves oftentimes dwelling in the realm of the hungry ghost. What the hungry ghost really finds to be satiating is the food of the Dharma, Dharma food. (laughs) (laughs) Dharma food includes observing and offering a sense of restraint to our actions and our speech so that we are not acting on our craving, on our hunger in ways that are going to hurt ourselves and others. That's one level of Dharma food. Another kind of Dharma food is samadhi and focused attention. Because in focusing the mind and encouraging samadhi, fullness of heart, we sense a fullness within. And so we don't need the unnourishing food quite as much. We find our fullness from within our own hearts and don't have to take that which is unnourishing and sometimes extraordinarily unnourishing and sometimes quite harmful. The third kind of Dharma food is the food of wisdom, which means observing and seeing into wanting and hunger and desire to be able to see its true nature to be able to dismantle it, to allow it to dissolve, to see it exactly as it is. So the first step is that of recognition. We may not always even notice how much we reside in the realm of the hungry ghost, in the busyness of our daily life. Now, sometimes with particular situations we poignantly know it. We extremely know it, and other people around us can't help but know it as well. But oftentimes, it really hits us when we come on retreat and we're out of our usual busyness. We live a a simpler life, and we can't just fill ourselves up in the ways that we're used to filling ourselves up. It's handy just to know that it's not one's own refrigerator. that one can't just immediately go to the refrigerator or, um, you know, the phone rings and it's not for you. It's <laughs> it's a very, very helpful thing. And one can begin to discover the depth of the hunger in this environment, which is absolutely essential. What we don't know is there can never be dissolved. So when we see something is there, then we can bring our practice to it, and change is possible. On retreat or off retreat, we can find ourselves entangled in planning. We can set up goal after goal after goal for ourselves, investing these goals with the power to give meaning to our lives. We inflate them in our minds, and we get very engrossed in when I get this or that. When I become, maybe another person, may I I create, when I experience, in the realm of meditation, you know, this is not not fine. When I experience whatever I think I have to or need to experience, when I get rid of, when I meet this person or that person, Am in this relationship or that relationship, this teacher or that teacher. Always something projected out into the future. Whether we attain our goals or whether we don't, the result is often a sense of instability and anxiety and restlessness because we're always on the edge, never is there contentment in the here and now? Never are things fine right here and now. We're always on the edge of the next moment. Something happening in the future that is going to be ultimately satisfying. I try to confine myself to one Tofu Roshi story, a retreat, but I, I have a good one. Sometimes on retreats, we, as I said, experience this hunger more. And obviously, this practitioner did. Dear Tofu Roshi, every time I sit a retreat, I am overcome with a desire to go out for ice cream. <laughs> In between retreats, I don't think much about it. There is an excellent ice cream store around the corner from Arzendo, just five minutes walk away. And during meditation, we have a break for 20 minutes after each meal. So the last retreat I was on, I planned it all out. During early morning meditation practice, I thought about a Carmel Sunday with Rocky Road ice cream. I continued to think about it all during our breakfast of rice cereal, seaweed and carrots, and fermented bean curd. When the break came, I set out for the ice cream store gazing casually at the sky and trying to look as though I was just seeing things as they are. (laughs) The ice cream store, which is also a coffee shop, was really crowded with people out for Saturday morning breakfast. I ordered my sundae and told them to hold the maraschino cherry. By the time I got served, I had about three minutes to eat my sundae. (laughs) I must say it was really delicious, even though I got caramel sauce on my robe and people looked at me funny. I hurried through the door of the meditation hall a few minutes late, trying to look as though I was enjoying my breathing. And when I reached my place, there on top of my zafu was a maraschino cherry. (laughs) What does this mean? I felt... I felt so embarrassed I hid it in the fold of my sutra card love suan dear suan why didn't you sit on it what is a maraschino cherry but a tiny red zafu <laughs> buddha is everywhere <sighs> we need to first of all value Contentment in order to move in the direction of contentment. It is really a big burden of thinking that we need to, have to, sometimes sensed as an obligation to fulfill our desires. I remember, this is a little bit of an extreme case, but I I remember teaching a class many years ago on the hindrances, and um, as many of you know, desire is one of the hindrances. And after the first talk on desire, um, someone came up to me and she said, Oh, I'm so relieved I don't have to try to get everything I think I have to have. That sense of um, taking a breath and realizing that it wasn't her obligation to try to fulfill each desire that she had observing our cultural values that feed our discontent because the hungry ghost is conditioned not just by our personal experiences which certainly are fundamental to this realm you know certainly there is more hungry ghost or less dependent on one's personal history so of course this is true at the same time in a way we are a hungry ghost culture here you know, in, in, um, in this part of the world and in the world at large these days too because of the advertising culture that we can't help but come into contact with. Um, I have uh, a little advertisement that um, I don't want you to think I hate California. We were just out there and it was really beautiful and Quite wonderful and spacious, but the advertisement is, California, where good enough isn't. <laughs> you yeah? know? Talk about craving. You huh? Talk about desire. The culture is geared towards not just the promise of satisfying desires, but also, as we know, towards arousing desires, you know, enticing so that, of course, we have to get what is promised to us. As I said, there, is such, there can be such a relief in knowing that we don't have to be compelled to cooperate. To be mindful at times and to examine, to investigate the various mottos that we have in life can be quite instructive and interesting, and you have to just look at this for yourself because um, we all have the mottos that we learned from a long time ago that we tend to carry around with us and not always see with any distance and examine. And so then we live according to those mottos, whether they make sense or not, whether they actually bring happiness or not, whether they actually can bring happiness or not. One of the mottos that I saw for myself at a certain point in the practice, with a little bit of help from Michael, is wanting to have my cake and eat it too. I realized that from a very early age, I actually thought that that was possible. I was living my life somehow thinking that I could have two conditions at the same time that were clashing. You know, one example is in early days of practice, thinking that I could fantasize wildly as much as I wanted to and still have a peaceful mind. Well, <laughs> yeah, I thought that in the early days. I also had kind of a more extreme, kind of more formed situation where, as you know, I, I, or I probably know I really love retreats and I, I have for a very long time. So when Michael and I were first together, somehow I thought that I could be on retreat and not leave Michael. <laughs> well, it's not possible. It's not possible. And yet there was the clinging in both directions. Moving from this, wanting to have my cake and eat it too, you know, in, in being able at a certain point to see this more clearly and see the suffering that it implied, being able to move to a new motto, a better motto, in in my opinion, which is, you can't have everything. (laughs) Much peace, much happiness in this particular motto. Now, you could say that, you know, I got depressed and resigned, but that's not what happened. It was actually an acceptance of the fact that Two conditions cannot be at the same time. Yeah? Kind of an acceptance of the fact that forms, as much as we attach to forms and think that they mean everything, they don't matter as much as we think they do. Yeah? Because they're limited. It's not the whole of life. Just an example is that if one chooses to have children... You know, there's a loss in that, in the choice to have children. Yeah. One loses. Perhaps if you're a contemplative, you lose your retreats. You lose your um, quiet time. Um, yeah. The other way of looking at this, of course, is that if you choose to have children, then you lose as well. Did I say it in the opposite way? <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you choose not to have children, <laughs> if you choose not to have children, one loses as well. It's such a great joy to have children. It's such a wonderful thing to be a parent. You know, wonderful things occur out of that. And so you lose too. I think this is a very Theravadan approach because maybe somebody else would say you you win either way. So I'm certainly in a particular lineage here. But, um, you know, that's, that's just another way of, of looking at it, that there's loss, and you can't have both. You can't be a parent and not be a parent. Some people try. But, you know, there's, there's, there's an enormous degree of suffering that comes out of that because it's not passable. I do feel that Michael and I have found the middle path with um, nephews and nieces. When we cling to one form, when we've chosen another, there is going to be suffering. When we're clinging to one form, when we've actually decided and committed to another form, the result of that is going to be suffering. Because there's going to be a constant not being able to get behind our decision. There's going to be a constant division, dividing, a fragmentation that is occurring. So in the embracing of the form that we've chosen, as long as it's wholesome and reasonable, to see if it is possible to get behind it and to let go of our thoughts and our ideas and our fantasy life, you know, that has to do with how happy we would have been if we had chosen another form. It's really the realm of the hungry ghost. Commitment to a form is generally necessary in this life. Sometimes people try to commit to no form. And oftentimes, sometimes this works, oftentimes it just drives people crazy and people around us crazy as well. Form is form. It's necessary to pay attention to it. And at the same time, it's just form versus a fullness within that we can discover in the midst of whatever form we have committed to. I have a very beautiful kind of story about Ryokin, who was a Zen master. Ryokin, a Zen master, lived the simplest kind of life in a little hut at the foot of a mountain, one evening a thief visited the hut, only to discover that there was nothing in it to steal. Ryokin returned and caught him. You may have come a long time you, you may have come a long way to visit me, he told the prowler, and you should not return empty handed. Please take the clothes. T- please take my clothes as a gift. The thief was bewildered. He took the clothes and slunk away. Ryokin sat naked watching the moon. Poor fellow, he mused, I wish I could give him this beautiful moon. This is really indicative of the inner fullness that is within us that we experience and pull out of us as we practice in our commitment to this form, this practice. Gratitude nourishes compassion, contentment. Thich Nhat Hanh oftentimes uses the example of looking at what is not wrong and, and experiencing gratitude for what is not wrong. You know, and you can, you can really come up with a great list most any time about what's not wrong. And he uses the example of not having a toothache. You no? <laughs> When we have a toothache, it takes most of one's attention. It's really, it can be so incredibly excruciating. But, you know, those millions of moments when there is no toothache, do we, are we grateful for that? Can we be grateful for that? Someone on this retreat came and thought that she was registered for this retreat and found out when she got here that she hadn't registered and then was allowed to stay anyway huge gratitude you know maybe having a retreat that's um not so great but doesn't matter because of huge gratitude for being allowed to stay yeah you know, the gratitude really feeding the practice really nourishing us and if we really need to nourish gratitude in other ways we can pay attention to this Story about the rabbi. This poor man had come to the end of his rope, and he went to his rabbi for advice. Holy rabbi, he cried, things are in a bad way with me and are getting worse all the time. We are so poor that my wife, my six children, my in-laws, and I all have to live in a one-room hut. We are getting in each other's ways all the time. Our nerves are frayed, and because we have a lot of troubles, we quarrel. Believe me, My home is a hell, and I'd sooner die than continue living this way. The rabbi pondered the matter. My son, he said, promise to do as I tell you, and your condition will improve. I promise, answered the man, I'll do anything you say. Tell me, what animals do you own? I have a cow, a goat, and some chickens. Okay, very well, go home now and take all these animals into your house to live with you. This poor guy was kind of perplexed. But since he had promised the rabbi, he went home and brought all the animals into his house. The following day, he returned to the rabbi and he cried, Rabbi, what a misfortune have you brought upon me. I did as you told me and brought the animals in. And now what have I got? Things are worse than ever. My life is a perfect hell. The house is turning into a barn. Help me, rabbi, help me. My son, he replied, go home and take the chickens out of your house. So the poor man went home and took the chickens out of his house. Not long after this, he again came running to the rabbi. Holy rabbi, he wailed. Help me, save me. The goat is smashing everything in the house. She's turning my life into a nightmare. Go home, he said, and take the goat out of the house. The poor man returned to his house and removed the goat. But it wasn't long before he again came running to the rabbi, crying loudly. "'Oh, my goodness, Rabbi, the cow has turned my house into a stable. "'How can you expect a human being to live side by side with an animal?' "'You're right, a hundred times right,' agreed the rabbi. "'Go straight home and take the cow out of your house.' "'And he went home and took the cow out of his house. "'A day had passed, not a day had passed, "'before he came running again to the rabbi. "'Rabbi,' he cried, his face beaming, "'you've made life so wonderful again for me.' With all the animals out, the house is so quiet, so roomy, and so clean. (laughs) What a pleasure. What a pleasure. Sometimes we need a little tough medicine in terms of understanding what we truly can be grateful for. As our enjoyment of things becomes more refined, which is what happens as we practice just sitting and just walking and being aware and mindful, of whatever it is that we're doing, everything becomes more refined, and so enjoyment becomes more refined as well. In other words, we don't need as much stimuli. We don't need the crudeness of things to wake us up. You know, we can find within something that is very, very subtle, very, very refined. And in this, the smallest of things can be enjoyed. As Basha, who was a um, very, very, very old woman who was very, um, uh, had a lot of things going on with her body. She said, happiness by me is a hot cup of tea on a cold day, and really meant it, really meant it. In the awareness of the hungry ghost, we don't solidify it and take it as real. We don't want to make it into something that is actually solid and real and permanent and who we are. In non identification with this state of mind, it vanishes. Remember that it's a ghost. It may be hungry, but it is a ghost. It's insubstantial and vanishes when we can pay attention to it, when we can be aware that it's occurring. We want to see it as it is, as a momentary state of consciousness. It may, of course, very well be a place that we spend time in and have spent time in. It may be a habit and a pattern. And if we see it in the here and now, in a sense confine it to the here and now, then we are more able to bring the kind of attentiveness to it that it actually requires to be able to see into it as it is and allow for dissolving. As contentment grows and as the hungry ghost dissolves, we can act and we can live not out of inner desperation, but instead out of wisdom and out of love. There can be a growing capacity to look at life in a calm and a caring way, even in the difficult situations that we find ourselves in Many years ago, Michael and I lived in an apartment that was on the first floor It was kind of it was a building of apartments and we were on the first floor and One morning, really early in the morning, quite early in the morning, we were woken up by this huge clattering happening, really loud sounds. And, of course, we woke up and looked at each other and thought, you know, it's um, somebody who's broken in. It's a burglar or murderer or something like that. And we jumped up, and we went um, towards the source of the sound, And we realized that the source of the sound was in the kitchen. And we just saw this blur of activity, this blur of energy occurring in the kitchen. And it took us a few minutes to see, to notice what it was. And we finally saw that it was a squirrel. And that this squirrel was making a huge racket because he was or she, whichever one, was going across the kitchen <laughs> I'll make this one into he was going across the kitchen and um, everything was being being thrown off the counters, you know, so so a lot of things were dropping to the floor because of the squirrel's activity. And then we realized that, um, you know, we were thinking the squirrel got in somewhere, so the squirrel would be able to get out in the same way that the squirrel got in. But it wasn't happening. So Michael went over and opened a window in the kitchen to give the squirrel more of a chance to get out. You know, there's the window, you know, big, big, pretty big, pretty big window. And we were pointing, you know, at the window. But didn't work, you know. Didn't work because the squirrel was so panicked. You know, that's what we could see. The squirrel was so panicked and so afraid that it was not able to see the exit. There was an exit, it was there, it was obvious. The squirrel could not see it. I can't actually remember how the squirrel got out. I think we opened the door and opened more windows and and left. You know because <laughs> <laughs> give it you know give it some space so that he could find his own way out, but I actually had the same experience when I was practicing in Thailand. Um, one of the monks very kindly gave me some bananas, and I didn't know that I, I needed to eat the bananas right away or else there would be a problem with some animal form or another, so I put them in this um this kind of place that I had other things that was outside. It was kind of a mesh, um, kind of a mesh storage area. And it was way high up. And so I thought, this is probably going to be okay because, um, you know, the other animals that I had encountered, the scorpions and this and that, were not going to be able to climb up there. I mean, something I found out, of course, is that um, animals are remarkable. I mean, they can climb anywhere. Um, You know, it's, it's just kind of amazing. But anyway... Um, I uh, put the bananas in this mesh container, and I went to sit. And then all of a sudden, hearing this huge kind of clatter coming from this thing that only had bananas in it. So what was going on? How could the bananas be doing this? And then I, of course, saw that there was a squirrel in, and I thought, how did the squirrel get in? You know, it's kind of very small. They can get in very, very small areas, I guess. It's, It's kind of a remarkable thing. Um, So I um, opened the door, again, so that the squirrel could get out. But again, so panicked, so afraid, it wasn't able to see its way out. This is called squirrel mind. (laughs) When we find ourselves panicked, and there is a way out, there is a door, there is a window, there is a way out. And someone's even pointing the way out to us. But we get afraid, we panic, and so we adopt the mind of a squirrel. If we can see this, it can help, we can quiet down, we can calm ourselves, and we can look in a different way you know, without this sense of agitation and of panic. Contentment is based on our willingness to expand our viewpoint, to see things from a bigger perspective, a larger perspective. And when we do, there is the possibility of discovering a sacred contentment, a contentment in which there is a creativity present in each moment, regardless of the way conditions are, regardless of what is happening, regardless of whether we like the conditions that are occurring or not. We touch this sacred sense of contentment that is there for us all the time. The Buddha said, don't hold on to anything. You don't cling to anything. Because when we cling to anything, we can't touch the very essence of life. We're preoccupied, we're lost with that which can't offer lasting happiness. There is very much a connection between hunger and contentment. The connection is that when we're blindly reaching out towards that which is ultimately unnourishing, we may miss the serenity within when our clinging relaxes itself, eases itself, our true nature has a chance to shine through. As attachment is reduced and inner space is revealed, and this is the very beginning of contentment, we want to become ever more familiar with this space, the space in which nothing is happening, or maybe I should say nothing and everything is happening. And yet there is an ease. There's a coolness. There's a sense of contentment. You know? But we miss it because we're trying to find something else. So familiarizing, you know, more and more um, intimacy with this space, more and more familiarity with this sense of of ease, of nothing happening. Instead of clinging to our desire for happiness, we settle naturally into our lives. You could say this is a great description of practice, settling more naturally into our lives, recognizing that whatever we meet is our life. Contentment is in no other place than right here, and right now. One of my really, truly wonderful teachers in this life was a forest master named Mahabua, Ajahn Mahabua, who is still alive in Thailand right now. He's in his 90s. And um, it's very interesting. Everyone around him that I knew there is dying, is dead, but he's he seems to, he's, he's living a long life. <laughs> kind of rumors about his ill health, but never happens. Anyway, this is not to mythologize him because he's bound to die at some point. But what he said is that nirvana is knowing enough. Yeah. It's, it's knowing enoughness. That is nirvana. That is awakeness. That is liberation. Is knowing enough. So I'd like to conclude with a something that someone named Uchiyama Roshi wrote when he was suffering a foot injury. If I had a wife to care for me, if my parents were near, if I had money, I wouldn't have suffered. In my dust-covered room, laying on ragged quilts, recalling Job, I can bear this hard pain. I am grateful. People worry, what if I lose my savings? What if I become ill and lose my job? Always framing their thoughts, what if? They're afraid, though their fears are groundless. Although I'm ill, without savings or income, unable to eat, even if I starved, I wouldn't think it strange. And just for that, I'm grateful. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have comfort of heart. May all beings eat the food of the Dharma. Could we sit for just a moment or two?